hey, guess what I still have? Uh, the T-shirt I bought at the REM concert in 1986. Uh, yeah, I still have that. Uh, the, the poster I bought at the REM show in 1986. Yeah, I still have that too. Uh, the same haircut that I had at the REM concert in 1986. Yeah, I've, I've still got that same haircut. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Blake Shelton. I still have tickets to the Blake Shelton concert, and they're going fast. Well, they're not going fast. They're going at a, at a reasonable Shelton-esque clip. <laughs> fast, uh, you know, that's an overstatement. This isn't live radio. Tickets aren't going by the second. Uh, but they're going reasonably uh, quickly uh, for the format that we have here. I have tickets to the Blake Shelton concert, and I want to give them to you. When is the concert? Well, it's the opening night of the SAP Center's 25th Festival Weekend here in San Jose, California. That is on September 13th, and believe me, you won't want to miss this. <laughs> Why did that not sound convincing? You don't. You don't want to miss this, especially if you're a Blake Shelton fan. If you're not a Blake Shelton fan, well, I can see you missing it. Uh, here's the deal. Hunter Hayes and Devin Dawson will be opening for Blake Shelton again September 13th in San Jose at the SAP Center. The bill will also include Kings of the West and Maluma. And not only that, in addition to the live music and the free performances outside the venue, there will be food, beverages, craft areas, games, rides, and more. Look, I have six pairs of tickets and I want to give them to you. So all you have to do is drop me a line, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com, and answer this question. On the last episode of Stereo Embers, the podcast, I talked to Will from Wilder, and he told me he doesn't trust any artist who doesn't feel what. Okay? Again, on the last podcast with Will from Wilder, he told me I don't trust any artist who doesn't feel what. What is the thing they need to feel for Will to trust them? Okay? Drop me a line at the email address I gave you, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com, and you could win those tickets. Again, the show is September 13th in San Jose at the SAP Center, and it's going to be fun. All right? All right. Let's get to the show. This is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of my guest today on the program, Kristen Hirsch. Let me tell you a little bit about Kristen Hirsch. 
All right, look, I recently turned 49, okay? It's out there in the open. Uh, And I'd be lying to you if I said the day of my birthday, it didn't sting a little bit. But that day I had a call scheduled with Kristen Hirsch, and I figured, well, that's the thing that will take the sting out. And it did. Why? Well, because she's awesome. She's smart, she's warm, and she's completely plugged in and present. And she made it all better because I was starting to feel like a big baby. Now, Kristen Hirsch has been on the show before, so I know her a bit. And I'm sure you know a bit about her, so I'm going to make this introduction fast. Putting it simply, Kristen Hirsch is a force of nature. The Georgia-born, Rhode Island-raised Hirsch started her first band, The Throwing Muses, when she was a freshman in high school. And they're still around today. How about that? The Muses were the first American band signed by the British 4AD label, which was home to bands like the Cocteau Twins and Dead Can Dance. Then they signed with Sire in the U.S. and put out landmark records like 1988's House Tornado and 1989's Hunk Papa. By 97, the Muses were on hiatus, and Hirsch had established herself as one of the most arresting and prolific solo acts around. Whether it's albums like Hips and Makers, Crooked, or Possible Dust Clouds, every entry in Hirsch's discography is loaded with spellbinding beauty. Along the way, she put out Rat Girl, which is what I consider to be one of the most important books ever written. A blistering memoir about life on the road juxtaposed with a life already lived and the life inside of us, Rat Girl is an unflinching, brutal, and beautifully written book that you should read now. Well, after this interview, of course. Hirsch has put out several other books, including 2015's Don't Suck, Don't Die, Giving Up Vic Chestnut, and her children's book Toby Snacks, which was also turned into an app for kids. She's done a lot, I know. But Kristen Hirsch never stops. The mother of four sons, Hirsch is also in 50-foot wave, she tours constantly, and she's writing another book. You know, just saying all this stuff out loud makes me think I need to do more. I'm feeling, you know, when compared to Kristen Hirsch, kind of lazy. But all kidding aside, this is a woman who truly inspires me. Her music sounds like songs about storms written inside of them. Every single note she writes is a swirling tempest of chaotic, gorgeous energy that rolls and sputters and soars and sinks, then rises again with muscle and heart, and it's all backlit by lightning and built over thunder. The fact is, Kristen Hirsch's music is brilliant, painful, comforting, wild, and open-hearted. I don't know what to tell you. She's the Meryl Streep of indie rock because she can do anything. Now, the Throwing Muses are set to open for The Cure, Hirsch is hard at work on new music with The Muses, and she reminds me and you and all of us to never, never stop, never slow down, and never give up. I love her. So, listen to us talk, listen to us celebrate my birthday, and listen to Kristen Hirsch make it all seem okay. It's pretty awesome. All right? Enjoy it. My conversation with Kristen Hirsch right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I guess it's been part of my birthday with you. That's cool. 
Yeah, happy birthday. Thank you. I'm 49 years old, Kristen Hirsch. You're a baby. <laughs> how, how are you with birthdays? Uh, you know, I have so many kids, I have no idea how old I am. <laughs> but I have to remember how old they are. And I, to tell the truth, I really don't. There's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the answer is like you sort of camouflage yourself with kids and you don't think about how old you are. No, you don't. Uh, and I can barely remember how old they are. <laughs> they get really offended. It's like not remembering someone's name. Like, I remember their names, even though I can't tell them apart. I call them all the wrong names all the time. But um, the ages, I truly, you know. <laughs> Once I don't have to throw birthday parties anymore, it sort of fades. The number isn't really important. <laughs> right, right. That's even also for how we experience birthdays is like the older you get the less the less significant they feel because there's not like a big nine on a cake or something yeah that's true and i sort of like to downplay the um aligning with any kind of life stage anyway <laughs> I know. because i mean they they're so cool when they're kids and you'd hate for them to become less than and a lot of less thans are um, people who, ado who adopted maturity, which is not particularly a mature thing to do. It's not as fluid as kids are. It's not as funny. You know, so I have more fun with people who don't grow up. So I encourage my children not to. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've grown up. Have you? No. And and yet, when I was a kid, I was very grown up. I just haven't really changed. I feel like I sort of don't give a shit about getting older or what the number means. Like I, you know, I feel I feel uh, smart and strong, and I think I'm uh, a better version of myself than I was yesterday. So isn't that all that matters? That's a good point. There are a lot more stories to tell. You're lighter, and yet with more gravity. And then you, you problem solve. You know, I, I know some people that will say, oh, I used to be able to handle jet lag or now everything hurts. And it's like, <laughs> I was a mess back then when I didn't know how to handle anything. I'm way better with jet lag now. And I've been problem solving for 50 something years. Right. Like, nothing ever hurts now. I got it all figured out. Right. You get, you just get better. You get, but what Tony Bennett said, Tony Bennett was saying this thing about in that Amy Winehouse movie. He said, as you get older, you just figure stuff out. It gets easier. Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, also a bunch of bad shit happens. <laughs> yeah. And well. that you didn't think could. And so these life hurdles that you didn't know were in front of you, um, they become um, more amorphous. You know, like, uh, what was it? Hauling and someone else are arguing um, for decades over whether or not it's in biology, it, it's the terrain or the invading organism, meaning should we vaccinate against these specific organisms, try to identify every single enemy that we're facing <laughs> and fight them, or should we try to maintain a strong fortress? And um, on his deathbed, he recounted it. <laughs> it is the terrain. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you ultimately come to feel. The hurdles are not something you can identify. They're not laid out in front of you. It's 
you know, how fast is the tide coming? You don't even know what direction it's coming from. So once you identify that it's an amorphous shadow cloud, you sort of give up. And a lightness comes with that appreciation of the gravity that's always coming. That's right. And that's an important thing to remind ourselves of because it certainly makes it a little bit more, I think it's easier to think of it that way. It, it's easier, yeah. You sort of let go the distraction of fear. Right, right. Because because fear... Uh, this got pretty heavy pretty fast. I, I know. <laughs> I thought we were I... talking about the new record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that didn't take long. We got right into it. <laughs> I remember the last time well, we talked... It's your birthday. <laughs> yeah, I know. We went from, right, from birthday to deathbed. The I think... <laughs> <laughs> the last time we talked, I was like, do you like Thanksgiving? So things have really changed. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's what you asked me? Yeah, I th- Why? Well, cause, yeah, because we had just, it was like right before Thanksgiving, and I was like, I thought I'd open with a Thanksgiving question. Oh, I yeah. love Thanksgiving. <laughs> Who doesn't? How could I, you not like Thanksgiving? I think, I think you said, I like it as long as I don't have to do anything. Oh gosh, that's a terrible answer. No, it was. I like fun. doing. I like doing everything, but I think maybe that Thanksgiving I wasn't doing anything. I have four very chefy uh, sons, and they take over the kitchen. I'm not really allowed to do anything because I had this theory when I was um, when they were really little that you could cook food that might not kill your children. I can't tell you how rare this is. You're supposed to just sort of stuff them full of things that make them shut up, I guess, or fill them with calories. And then you you try to make it good, like foodie, gourmet food, and it's four sticks of butter is the first ingredient and everything. So I just took my hippie upbringing and my science background and made them food that Turns them healthy and beautiful <laughs> and happy, <laughs> and they have resented me ever since. Right, that sounds about right. So they, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so all four of them are incredible chefs. And um, I mean, the other side of it is, growing up on a tour bus, you get kind of hungry. But uh, yeah, most Thanksgivings, I'm not allowed to do anything except like set the table. <laughs> they just say stay right there do not move yeah make the salad is the deepest insult because you know they're trying to placate your urge to mom and yet the salad comes in a bag pour it in a bowl <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i feel like you you know indie rocker and four sons would have been a great premise for some kind of sitcom yeah i think that's what my publishers were thinking when they made me write a book about it i just finished it and now I'm in the editing process and um, I believe that they just didn't understand how boring a tour bus really is but they also didn't know how interesting my children are and interesting not in a good way like (laughs) in a baffling way Um, and yet the book when you know, you start writing about your children, all you can think of is gravity and hurdles. <laughs> right. But as the book began to write itself, which is what you want in any process, you want to just slowly extricate yourself, get out of the way. And the book wanted to be light. 
you know, the hurdles are a given. I mean, life and death, it comes with life, obviously. There are these four lives playing out in front of me. What are you going to do but try to laugh through it? And I just kept making them food they hated in the background. <laughs> I kept them alive. <laughs> and yeah, the book kind of reads like a sitcom, I have to say. When you realized the book was going to be kind of light, didn't that help you reach a kind of flow state where it's so much easier to go that direction? Oh, what a sweet question. <laughs> you just made me well up. Yes, lightness is where it's at. I yeah. have to say, I mean, I, I know most people wouldn't think that about me, but it's why I try not to alienate in music. I think you can go for if not irresistible, some amount of attraction that makes it beautiful and ugly, yes, but also some pretty, some invitation to, to join us. And um, yeah, I found that I wanted to go there too. Uh, even in, this is a, a memoir, like this is essentially Rat Girl 2, so it's it leaves off I mean, Rekko leaves off uh, three years before this begins. And it was, my life's been sort of brutal, but it didn't want to end there. It took some steps toward brutality and kept ending in a scene where it was light. And you come away thinking, well, then there's hope. I mean, it's just simply put, well, how could you live without that? Right. I think Rat Girl, for my money, is literally, it's indispensable. It's one of the greatest books of its kind. I, I just, even out of sight of its kind, it is just absolutely essential reading, I think, for anybody. Thank you so much. Music fan or not, for, for my listeners, if you haven't read Rat Girl, go get it at the end of this interview. Um but I just I <laughs> it's love not it. Particularly about music, is it? No, it's not. It's yeah. not. Um, I just was in Barnes and Noble and did a double take. <laughs> saw it. Oh, cool! The, on the top shelf of I don't know how cool this is. It'll be. <laughs> wait, let me get this right. The new paranormal teen romance section. <laughs> this is nonfiction. This is my memoir. <laughs> my life <laughs> it's not old paranormal teen romance it's brand new paranormal teen romance <laughs> it's... I think well teen that's all I can think of yeah, I, I was know. a teenager <laughs> nothing else works <laughs> I think because it's sort of um, surreal and true I don't know it's, uh, I always call it science nonfiction because it's it kind of follows the thread of magical thinking, but it actually happened. Right. And it has that. That's why I always thought it'd be fun to be filmed. I always thought it'd be a great movie. Oh, uh, it's uh, someone's writing a script right now, Good. but it's, they've tried to work it to um, various studios. And it's on the one hand, a very American story. So the studios that um, are more, let's say, artfully oriented overseas always want it to happen in their own country <laughs> i have to say well it didn't right and um and here they're afraid it's too unusual 
you know, kind of what you would think, but that's okay. I'm not real ambitious. <laughs> well, uh, wasn't the the UK version wasn't it paradoxical undressing? Or do I remember that correctly? Yeah. Well, you're good. That was the original title, and it was actually workshopped as a. That sounds so lame. A one woman show. I don't know how else to say it, but it was right. spoken word plus music. So I would tell the stories and play the songs, play instrumentals underneath the stories, and then play the songs that referred to the section, which is actually how the book ended up being written, even though I'm not there to play the songs. And there were films behind me that a painter who paints to my records did. And uh, another a filmmaker made films of the paintings. And it, so it was very multimedia and kind of sweet. And I workshop at a few fringe festivals, Sydney, Edinburgh, and and then in Glasgow at a residency. And I found that I wanted to, um, I guess, be referred to what worked and what didn't by the audience. And, and I know you're not supposed to let say, the listener determine the music, but in this case, it was the first time I ever spoke English instead of music. And not everyone is musically literate enough to call that a language. You know, they could be. They could they could say, okay, visceral response now, but they don't always do that. Right. So music doesn't speak to everybody, but English speaks to a lot of people. And I was interested. It, some things really flew and some things didn't. They're in, in Sydney, a lot of people vomited. <laughs> really? Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of people. Yeah. And they would leave first, but it was just obvious that they were walking outside. <laughs> it was in a, a tent. It was a fringe festival, so I had a tent. And then Reggie Watts, the comedian, had a tent next door. And so afterwards, we'd meet and wait for the – we'd kind of hide behind our tents and wait for everybody to leave and hang out until – long after dark we could go back to our flats and um you know he he didn't he never let me forget that nobody vomited in his show (laughs) (laughs) i like how that's the marker for how things were successful (laughs) well i kind of thought you know it worked not not all car crashes will (laughs) move people they just go oh it didn't happen to me so but these people were pretty involved to be listening to a story and thinking, oh, car crash is now happening to me. Yeah, I mean, it's very a very visceral um, and experiential way to take it in. Um, which, yeah, you know. yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. In fact, you know, maybe this is not nice, but I kept the parts where they vomited and kept the parts where they laughed. The parts where they cried, I kept about half of them. And the parts where they were silent was kind of tossed up. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to tell what was going on. <laughs> right, because it, because you're getting because a reaction of any kind is means that the the meter and the needle has has registered. Yeah, and when I was on the book tours for that book, a lot of writers um, doing the same circuit just didn't have the benefit of that. They they don't write funny books. And they don't write books that make people puke. <laughs> so they would 
just be met with total silence and they'd feel awful about it. I'd be saying like, you don't know. You're going to have to assume that there is impact if you present them with depth. And they often couldn't deal. So they would try to read something that they thought was funny and it was so much worse. That's dying up there. Like, you just don't joke that nobody laughs at. <laughs> and, you know, writers can be a little white that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is witty. <laughs> but it's not like, it's, it doesn't have the timing that you need to get an audience to laugh. <laughs> or puke. Or puke. Right. That's <laughs> Right. Laughing more importantly. Yeah, more importantly, right. Do, do you feel that when you are... Is it easier for you to enter the world of Rat Girl or easier to enter the world of, of the songs that you write? Because I know those are, those are both two totally different kingdoms, right? They are. Yeah, thanks for knowing that. Um, I can walk into a song and it is. It's happening. All the stories in it, I relive uh, and more. A hyper technicolor version of a, like an acid trip of a memory prose is my way of telling other people what happened. But um, when I did this spoken word thing, I have to admit, every night brought me down a little bit more. It was not something that fed me. I felt like it was a little bit of a Frankenstein monster. I was trying to put together uh aspects of guts that w- weren't gonna walk me around i didn't belong there anymore that's what it is I, I, it could walk around it could go help people it could serve people and that's really the only reason i published it is if it could help one kid one kid with a passion that has to live then i did my job and i can walk away but it was not good for me and music i could live off of i'll go on tour and realize after months that I haven't had anything to eat but like 7-Eleven coffee <laughs> and I'm fine <laughs> music can feed me but um I don't think it's less of an art form or anything I just I'm just born that way music is my thing my addiction how I speak apparently I don't speak English right <laughs> but I know I can speak music right. Whether anybody agrees with me or not, I know I can. <laughs> Did you? Was that surprising to you when, with the Frankenstein moments where it was bringing you down? Were you when you first realized that was the kind of thing that was happening? Did it? Was it startling to you? And was it? And then did it become kind of uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't. I had to stop. It sounds kind of hypersensitive. I did my job, but I didn't book anymore um, because. As successful as it was, that's no way to live. There was something inappropriate about going back in time every night. Um, And the musical interludes didn't do the same thing. They took the very same story and brought it to life now. But the prose was not alive now. It was about the past and I didn't belong there in, in fact you could sometimes feel the same way if you're watching home movies and um, someone who has died comes up 
you're not biologically prepared to have all your senses feel like they're in the room except maybe one but you're just not ready and you need to move on it's it's not healthy and that's what I was doing I was watching some dead people in home movies and I thought I should maybe get out of the way and let the book help somebody else it's a strange feeling isn't it it really is I if I listen to a Vic Chestnut record sometimes the music just is because music and then in some songs that aren't as alive, he is more alive and the nuances of his voice and all my memories um, become like earworms and they drag you. Uh, you shouldn't be dragged. You should, you should be lifted and um, his, his real songs will lift, but uh the ones where he, they were more craft than inspiration or so that they're kind of stuck in time. They drag me back in time and it wouldn't be a problem if he were alive, but he's not. And so it hurts to go back. Yeah. It's an extra dose of heavy. It, it is. And the heavy is a given, but you don't need to go to a funeral every day. No, <laughs> no. I, I agree. I think it's, I mean, there are sometimes like, um, even someone like Nick Drake, there are days where I just can't do it. Um, oh, I know. Nick Drake is a big one that way. Yeah. And, and sometimes he helps you through it. Yeah. If you're facing that anyway. But I think, you know, Nick Drake has the same issue where some of his songs are inspiration and some are craft and um, the inspiration uh, will pull pull you up if you're facing something sad already. But yeah, we had Nick Drake as a soundtrack to a, a horrifying event in our lives, and my little boy Bo can um, he couldn't listen to him for years, and he just in our truck the other day um, in California. He's a little surfer. We were going to surf a beach up the coast and. He put Nick Drake on. I didn't say anything. I thought it was a mistake, and he was going to get upset. But he played three Nick Drake records in a row and said, "I can do it now. I'm ready." Oh wow, wow! I know. And good for Nick Drake, who died thinking no one would ever hear him. Right, and I also wonder if the the geography of it, like Nick Drake in California, sounds like a really good thing. But had you been like in Vermont and it was snowing or something, maybe that wouldn't have worked as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And it was in New Orleans where the horror was. And so it was not that different. There were palm trees everywhere. And um, he, uh, I think it was good. I think it was, I, I thought, well, maybe I, I shouldn't create associations in a child. You know, that's not fair. But I think he did it. I think. It was a medicine that when he took it again, reminded him of the sickness mm. and then eventually reminded him of the healing. And that's what music should be, right? Should be medicine. Right, right. Yeah, and, and sometimes it gets, you know, like I'm trying, I've been struggling with this Morrissey thing and, um, you know, like I, like I wouldn't have made it uh, through high school in such good shape 
had it not been for the Smiths, I think I would have been shabbier. Um, uh, uh, just my psyche, they really, you know, provided such an enormous, uh, comfort for me. Um, uh-huh. and then having, you know, Morrissey going through all this weird far right stuff, it's sort of like corrosive a little bit where I've been sort of trying to separate the artist from the art, um, which you is, should always separate the artist from yeah, the art anyway. You have to, right? You really do have to. And not because your heroes are less than or anything. It's just that inspiration is not a person. Genius isn't a person. There's no such thing. And in the music business, the moments of grace that will allow a song to fall on you will not be allow themselves to be shared with the egoic distractions of fame and money that the music business allows for. So you should be very mistrustful of someone in the music industry when you're looking for your life soundtrack and find the moments where they are not distracted by those awful evils, which is really all the music business ever offered us. I love the idea that genius is not a person. It's just, it's just this kind of thing that happens. It's the spark. Um, I it love- absolutely is. And, and in that case, you know, a good song is more likely to land on Morrissey's hotel maid than Morrissey because she has a real life. She's active in this. Uh, it will shut down your cells to fall prey to one of those Pandora's box evils. And obviously the music business, which is essentially a fashion industry, is going to present you with those. I, you know, talking about writing, I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write a follow-up to my, my first book of poems, and which came out in you know 2014. And I all my poems seem to take place in this kind of mythical coastal town. And I don't always get access back into that town. It's only only sometimes when the, you know, the heavens part and the timing's right, I get back in there and then I write as quickly wow. as I can. Right? Oh, that's so uh, cool. It's yeah. so and, and like prose for me is much easier, but the poetry, it's like this, it's just this strange Lynchian mythical place. Um, and I think last time I was talking to you about that and you were saying that your songs kind of take place in, in the middle of a tempest, you know, like a storm. Um, do you feel that you always have access to that place? You can always get in. Uh, I haven't tried. (laughs) (laughs) It just um, shows up. Uh, It it used to show up loudly, noisily, and uh, it doesn't do that anymore. Um, But it becomes readily apparent when it blocks out the horizon. (laughs) I've just never had to go looking. I always had too many songs. It's Almost like it, it finds you, like the town comes to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, I think that's that's why some people's songs suffer, not not just because they want to be rock stars or something, but because uh, they love inspiration. I know that was Vic's addiction with songwriting. And so he kept going when he didn't have any inspiration. And I'd say, like, whoa. You're really just sort of building a sandcastle here. <laughs> the ocean. And you know, you gotta you gotta let the ocean tell you what to do. You can't build anything out of nothing and 
you know, he thought as long as he was at the seaside town, it would be okay. And it was okay, but I can tell the difference. He has songs that are magic and timeless and songs that are just Vic the guy. Right, right, right. And it's interesting to kind of hear um, the the distinction between the two. Um, I, I wonder, he clear he must have known the the two the, the difference between the two as well. He must have been able to tell the two. Oh yeah, he let me give him shit about it. Oh, he but did. he also had this yeah he had this idea that I uh, we could write the perfect song, which he called the perfect song, which for him was so simple that uh, it would be pure of form and not um, no artifice, but it would be easy enough for anyone to understand. You wouldn't have to be musically literate. You wouldn't have to be even a smarter, gutsy person, or, you know, that nothing would get in the way. And I, I kind of like that idea, but if you try to do it, you're already lost. You tried. Right. <laughs> and it just didn't happen. That was not what we were tasked with. We were tasked with more complexity than that. And in this consumerist culture, music is just dumbed down to be sold. So once you allow for that, you just kind of walk away from the game anyway. And she had trouble walking away from the game because they tell you you're a failure. And it's always, you know, we knew it was the opposite. Losers are winners. Winners are losers. Right. The, you can't fail if your music is good. You could, you know, they, they flat out tell you, give us a stupid song and we'll get it played on the radio. And what I didn't get was why you would want to be shamed in public. That's like them saying, well, get in the stocks now. <laughs> like, be as dumb as you possibly can be and we'll show everyone. I, I just, I think that's awful. It's awful for everybody. <laughs> but for some people, they have a hunger for that for acceptance. And if that's the only kind, they'll go there. They, even if they have a problem with it, they'll go there for acceptance. Now the, and it was not in the cards for Vic anyway. He wasn't going to be accepted. So, yeah, wh- where is the win? Yeah, it's almost like you – it's so funny because, like, everything on the radio was dumb. And, and it's kind of like – it's almost like – like you were saying, it's the inverse. Like, the songs are, are, are too smart to be – to survive in a in a realm where everything is so stupid. Um, exactly. Yeah, and – it's you know there was good radio there were good bands there were good record companies there was good everything it was just in the sub music business and especially here in america where it's 50 countries and if you're going to be attractive across the board there you need money behind you to market you and if you're going to market anything for some reason you just market the shit but i don't know why that is because you don't respect anybody i guess but they did the the equivalent of marketing, you know, Laffy Taffy, the Halloween candy you pitch out of your bag before you even get home. <laughs> when apples actually just grow on trees. And so given that equation, I would ask why any of us think we could sell music. Uh, why am I saying, look at me breathe. Music is it. We should play our own music. We shouldn't let anybody play music for us. Right. 
Well, but those... and certainly not insult us with labby tappy music. Your teeth will fall out. <laughs> well, those people that had so much agency back in the late '80s, early '90s, those those record executive people who would say the songs aren't good enough. Do those people still hold? They would say the songs aren't bad enough. Right. They knew what they were doing. Right. Because right. you, you you enter with enthusiasm, thinking I'll share what I do because I love it. And maybe it could make others as happy as it made me. And I could make another record. I could make just enough money. I could get just enough attention to make another record. But they don't lack for substance, according to them. They know they don't have any, but they don't want any. They, they don't think it's the match made in heaven that you do when you're a teenager going, hey, you just don't have any songs. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want songs. They want you to look like a bimbo and sound like a bimbo. And no matter what gender you are, you know, you're like, like go be an idiot. <laughs> what makes them look at you? We'll buy people to look at you. It, the equation is fucked. Pray for who? Pretty please. Who knows what? Crowded, empty, crowd surfing all winter. Hand in hand, you surfed a summer bloodstream sick with contraband. A perfect stranger's perfect.
do those executives do they still exist and do they hold sway the way they used to because i imagine that they're they're very their role seems minimized now as far as planet earth goes yeah they were a blip anyway right but uh the music business isn't even that old and music is a spontaneous human impulse it's not a business and it should never have been a business except like i say to be to keep musicians working if you want them to work otherwise you know we should be working at the drugstore and playing in our spare time and that's valid but right now we have a sort of template set up where people can be musicians and share more than one copy of what they do. And if we don't make any money, then we're doing what musicians always did. <laughs> but the, the problem is people being willing to suck. I think it's not really the executives, obviously executives are messed up, but why are you doing this? Like, do you want to be a model and <laughs> you're just choosing sound instead? Why do you want to be looked at? What is that? And then some people want money, which you know, I can figure out why they want that. But I think if you're a musician, your focus is so, so granular that to look up and away from it would take way more than something that ridiculous. Um, it's just that people don't question themselves when they get too much attention and too much money. They should be asking themselves what they did wrong. They made a mistake, and so did the people who responded to it. And it's an egoic one, and it's an insult to the listeners and to music. That's what we have to step away from, people being willing to play the game that Executives will go off and sell something else, but don't pick up an instrument to do anything but make music happen. And I always wondered, because I, I've always heard the story that your emotional maturity gets arrested when you get the minute you get fame. But I also wonder if your artistic maturity takes a bigger hit. Oh, I think it's just gone because it's not you. So you can't hear it anymore. You're thinking about yourself. You can't be about self-expression, self-absorption, self-consciousness. You have to let go of a self if you're going to be a song. That's right. And so if you have – exactly, exactly. So it can actually be crippling on two different levels that sort of emotionally yeah, and artistically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then you're, you're robbed of a real life if you think – you're bigger than anyone else or people are looking at you or you're safe. Those are the three problems um, for musicians that will keep them from ever hearing another song. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think about that a lot. And I can also, I can also identify where, you know, which careers have been hobbled in, in that way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then you can see them sort of, have their own car crash and puke and <laughs> break down and they can be capable of work again, but not 
if they let the demons back, not if they think they're bigger than anyone else. There's just no such thing as big when it comes to people. People are people. Right. I think like that self-awareness where you can sort of stop and reverse direction is is where the sort of, you know, the salvation probably lies in that moment. But you have to be self-aware enough to recognize it. Yeah, and as a listener, you should probably be aware of self and others. You know, don't let them insult you. There's a role to play in active listening. And it's probably bigger than the musicians, I have to say. it's That's a tough thing to do. It's a roller coaster, uh, music appreciation. you got to take that ride, not know where it's going, hope they're not lying to you, <laughs> hope you're hearing substance over style hope the next record doesn't suck you got to be present when and trusting it's a it's a big deal so if if you feel like you've been weak in your appreciation of a musician that's why it's because you were guilelessly wanting to love something and we're probably biologically predisposed to think it's a good thing to have someone playing music to us or coming on to us which is what they do like, imagine people stopped pretending they were going to sleep with people in order to sell their records. Mm. Just that. <laughs> we're so used to it. Yeah. We're flirting. I think about it for a minute. We should be flirting with the people we love. And that's it. We shouldn't be trying to present ourselves as sexual to anybody else. So what is that? That selling to strangers is a perversion and it's marketing and it's a lie. They're not going to sleep with you. (laughs) But we're used to as beings thinking, well, that means love. And it doesn't. It's self-absorption. It's the opposite. It's I want attention and Anyone who wants attention is not going to be offering real music. No, and it's a transaction which is informed and powered by artifice. Yes, that's it. That's the sentence. You did it. We're done. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. (laughs) So so do you like Thanksgiving? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things I I love about you is that I look at – the way that you produce. I, I look at the way that you stay busy and it inspires me because we've established a couple of years ago that we're teammates and I look at the way that you govern your artistic life and you stay very busy. And I, and I think that that is so important that idle time is fine, but it, it's better for me not to have a lot of it because I'll waste it. But if I'm really busy, Kristen, I am so effective. That is a great attitude. As long as you know how to be still, too. I don't mean to get all hippie on you, but no, no. If, if you can do nothing, it's, it's really valid. Sometimes you just need a fireplace or a Christmas tree or something right. <laughs> to prove to yourself <laughs> that you can do that or one other person that you can be in silence with. Um, but I'm, I'm a very restless person, and I'm not proud of that. And that, but that said, I don't have a job. <laughs> now I can be, you know, busy. My output is um, 
a result of not having a day job. Right. I mean, you call raising four children and writing books and being on tour and being in the studio. And so it just definitely keeps me busy. It fills my days. But I can focus on music. And most musicians are, they have to consider themselves hobbyists, which is fine. Um, because they can only devote an hour or so a day to their religion. And um, it's sad that what we see of that religion is only televangelism. And so that makes me not get a day job because I think, well, this should be in our hands. This should be in the hands of actual musicians. Let's see what we can do about that. The paradigm is shifting. The big guys, you know, fell on their faces and I knew it was going to happen. Everybody did. And I'm not even sure they know it's happened yet, but um, they're sort of done. And it's probably time for us to have music back in the hands of uh, the populace. You know, top down is, is no way to orient spirituality. What I love also is that, you know, through your art, you've been able to show your children the world. Oh, what a kind thing to say. Yeah, they don't always appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> they will. I mean, you know, like, it's incredible to me when I think about, like, where your music has taken your family. It's kind of a beautiful, organic way of of meeting the world. Because, you know, like, I know families. I live here in the Bay Area. I live, um, you know, I'm the poor guy who, who is lucky enough to live in a rent-controlled place and an affluent community. And I see people go, well, we're going to France for two weeks. And I think, okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. But if you're going to France to play some shows, that's far more organic and natural and a great way to sort of meet that country as a young man in this world or, or a woman. It, it is unbelievable. It is such a gift. And it... I'm going to just say this once. It's not easy. I am done. (laughs) (laughs) You can get very hungry and very sleep deprived and very dirty. (laughs) Sure. And the kids will say, sometimes they'll say, oh, I miss snow in Oslo, you know, and, I was like, yeah, but you don't miss sleep in Detroit. <laughs> you, know, you got got to do both. But I can't imagine another way. I've been so honored to work with people everywhere I go. And I don't really ever stop. I can't. Obviously, I don't have a day job, so I can't say no to any work. And I actually, this is a really embarrassing story, but because I just say, yes, 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 fine, 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 to every show that I'm offered, my manager kept saying, I was like, you sure you, you want to go to the Canary Islands? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll Google them later. It's like, what are they, <laughs> Florida or something? Like, it's in English. How far away could it be? Africa. I had to go to fucking Africa. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't fly to Morocco. <laughs> it took like four days to get there. And I was there for about 24 hours. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But it was so worth it. How often do you get to work with people in the Canary Islands? How often do you get to go to Morocco and get paid for it and uh, play music for people? And, God, you know, it sounds so lame, but it really is a universal language. It's crazy. 
Yeah. The only thing that will keep people from understanding music is if they've been told they won't. That's right. That's right. And I also think, you know, like when I was in college, the, the most interesting guy was a friend of mine who was the son of a pilot. And he would just go with his dad, who was a pilot. They would go all over the world. And maybe he was in Morocco for 24 hours. But damn, it was interesting to hear him talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there are the townies that never leave, and they're just as open-minded and, you know, aborigines go to the moon. So you can live with your life on no matter what, I, I think, right? Well, but sure. it it certainly does facilitate an open mind to know from experience that you cannot carry an ism, that you cannot predict behavior based on gender, race, age, anything, anything. at all. Right. Yeah. So my, my four sons are oddly lacking in this orientation that everyone seems to have that you have to somehow align with a demographic. Um, and it's, that's just a huge and dangerous lie. That's, it's not harmless, that lie. How do you – I remember reading this, something about uh, the poet Robinson Jeffers, and I was I was reading that he – when he was living in the tour house in, in Monterey, um, if his wife he, – he was actually invested in the stock market, and he had money, but his wife – I guess she didn't really – she thought they made their money by him writing. So if she didn't hear the typewriter, she would take like a, um, a mop and uh, the end of it, and she would bang it on the ceiling like, keep writing, dude – keep the push right <laughs> and i wonder like we we have to like for ourselves we have to have that both for art for artists um we have to have that that voice saying keep going keep going because otherwise if you stop the income right is dependent on you producing and so i wonder if that also puts a weird pressure or if that's okay um or are you used to that how, how do you handle that balance i don't I I just get used to the ebb and flow. I'm very aware that keep writing is not the same as keep typing, I guess. Right. Like right. any writer would be. So uh, my, um, my output, if you start to measure what I do, I would be roundly considered a failure. But I don't really uh, measure people or music that way. So I'm kind of a free agent in it. So far, I've been able to pay my rent. Sometimes I can't. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, all four children are alive, but um, it's something I've been tasked with. And I'll keep playing in my garage if nobody wants to hear it anymore. I've just been allowed to do it all day when people do want to hear it. And it's not many people, but enough repeat customers that when I release an album with one of my uh, bands, they show up and then I can release another one. <laughs> it's kind of been right. that way for a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I just spoke to Robert Forster of the go-betweens and I asked him if he felt kind of, you know, protective or curatorial about the go-betweens legacy and I wonder how you feel about, like the Throwing Muses, do you feel there? it's like an organism that you guard? How how do you regard that, the idea of the band? 
Oh, I just walk away. Absolutely no attachment whatsoever. Every record is just like, well, there you go. Leave now. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> There's always something to walk toward. I don't have a legacy thing, especially not with that band because we were all messed up. Like uh, Warner Brothers was in our faces, and uh, we weren't always in control of our own production. I guess from like. Um, Red Heaven on I was I'm okay with it and our last record was the best Purgatory Paradise a couple years ago and our record before that was the best I think we were always sort of heading somewhere better and then maybe that's why I'm not so into legacy because I was like "Ah, we can do better (laughs) 50 foot wave I am I feel like I'm kind of attached because we're so active and that's how I always wanted to sound, but I think we got better and better too. Uh, Bath Light, our last release, and Power and Light, those, those are the records I was born to make. And Solo is my name, so I can't really attach to that. Uh, it's not a good answer. It's a great answer. <laughs> no, because it's, answer a, no. <laughs> it's a great answer. It's, it's an answer that allows you to not. Like you can sleep at night because you're not worried about, you know, being this sort of gatekeeping or guarding this idea, um, which is a, a fictitious idea anyway. Right. It's like, oh, God, if anything, I'm just worried someone's going to hear it. Okay. <laughs> 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 My drummer is always wanting to like put out anthologies and, you know, re-release everything, record everything. And I could re-record. I would do that because some of the songs were cheated. But. And then we can leave songs we don't like off the records. But um, there's so much else to do. The music are in the studio right now. 50 Foot Wave is in the studio on the opposite coast. Um, And I'm touring a new solo record and starting another one. And, you know, I just finished this book. I just start tired thinking about legacy stuff, catalog. Plus, Warner Brothers sold it to somebody and didn't even... uh, you know, ask us to bid on it or anything. So we have nothing to do with that recorded product. It's somebody else's. It's so strange to think that your, the stuff that comes from your brain is handled by other people. It's such a weird idea. I know. And we can't even re-record for a long time. You know, you can't just say, all right, you own these recordings, but it's my song. You're not even allowed to re-record it. Yeah, that's so. That's just mind-boggling to me. I, if I thought about that too much, I would lose sleep for like a year. Um, yeah, you know what you're signing up for, though. And um, like I say, most of the people signing record contracts aren't musicians anyway. So they're just like, yes, yes, yes. I will parade around in this outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I will, you know, I will write commercial jingles for your terrible radio station. So, yeah, they know what they're signing up for and they're not signing anything away and i wasn't really either because i had lots of songs songs just kind of are and and they facilitated a process the recording process and then manufacturing process and then distribution so that means that my music got heard by some people and um i i actually never complained about that i complained about them not even trying to sell our records having our songs taken off the radio stuff like that uh I thought your own record company shouldn't work against you. It's not like I, I bought us off of our, out of our contract because I have so much integrity. I bought us out of our contract by giving them my 
first solo record. Not because I had any money. <laughs> they made sure I didn't have any money. Um, I did it because they weren't doing anything. They weren't working on records, and they were like literally taking our songs off the radio because their payola was for other bands. In the late 80s when there was that big uh, sort of gold rush of you know, major labels signing a band like Poi Dog Pondering and, and throwing muses and not really knowing what to do um, with those bands. Well, they knew exactly what they were doing with us. They said that we were like the Velvet Underground, that we had musicians fans and that the process of invention in music is so uh, chaotic and artful that they're looking for the diluted imitator version like ha- what happened to black music. They know this process. Someone invents something and then they sign the and work the bands that will imitate the style while losing the substance. Right. So they signed a bunch of bands saying, we have throwing music, you like them. And they wouldn't let us go for that reason because they kept signing bands on our back saying, you know, we have throwing music. And I said, well, why don't you work for musicians? And they say, oh, people don't like you. It's just musicians. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. I was like, well, fair enough. I'm, you know, I'm good with that. But maybe let us go so we can work our own records or, you know, quit taking our songs off the radio. Don't work against us. But that's not how payola works. No, not, a, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite. They have to be, they put a ton of money behind the bands they work. They buy you the cover of Rolling Stone. They buy you the cover of Spin. They buy you these radios, all these radio stations. And it's just, they buy you a Grammy. And then it's done. That's your career. But in order to, do, to get them to do that, you have to be considered dumb enough to impress the lowest common denominator. And there isn't really any such thing, but they've also convince people that they are the lowest common denominator by only selling this crap to them. And just just sit in their offices and say, look at your record collection. Like, you know what music is. Why do you sell crap? And they'd say, because crap sells. What's the <laughs> crap sells because you sell crap. <laughs> we can go around in circles if you want, but I know exactly why crap sells. You sold it. Yeah, and a lot of those bands... A lot of a lot of them from the Boston area, like O Positive and Big Dipper, like they they only put one record out on that major label. That was it. That they only they only had them for one, and then they sort of you know, got rid of all of them. They were looking for style. You know, if you're looking at the superficial and you're judging anything by that, the trappings of a person, a process, a band, a movie, anything, then you're just scattering buckshot. Like every now and then you might find some substance beneath it, but you have no way to measure that if you're only measuring the superficial, obviously. You know, it's like thinking a lipstick color is a woman. I I get so inspired by your body of work and I spend so much time with your, with your music and your books. And I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy we're pals. We're happy we're teammates. I, I love chatting with you. I need you. You make sense of everything. Thank you so much, dear. And the other aspect of that, the book that I was asked to write about my kids, what keeps coming up in it is the writers, the writers, the writers. And by that, I mean the professional listeners, the people who get it and hope you keep going. Otherwise, we would just be lost in our own little tornadoes. 
Um, yeah. But I, I didn't know that it was that a, a mission would take on the outside world until people pointed it out. Like, well, there's there's some teammates out there, and if you don't do your part, you're not helping. There's something to be said for the freaks, I guess. It's, it's there's something okay about the marginalized um, role. Like, because it's one of an, an observer and a uh, listener. And if you can observe and you can listen, those are untapped muscles in a lot of people. That's right. And and I I have never felt like I've belonged anywhere. The only time I ever felt I belonged anywhere was, was in – High school, I, I had a, a high school that was sort of like Glee, but it was a metal radio station. And I became a DJ playing metal when I was 15. And that was the first time I ever felt like I belonged with these other misfits. And in my life, like, you know, even in my adult life, I still don't feel um, that I belong. And when I talk to you, I belong with you. When I talk to, you know, I can I can tell like we are, uh, we see the world the same way. And and we are indeed teammates, and that's very important to me because I find that I belong – I find that sense of belonging in other people, and it's really a tremendous comfort to me. That's great. Oh, that's interesting. I know there's a sense of alienation that can come from just being your raw humanity because so many people think that if they follow the rules of stepping away from that, then – they will be accepted and they convince you that that's true. But what you present then, if you have no artifice, as you say, is something so valid compared to the rules that they're following. They fade into so many backgrounds and yet you know how to fade into a background if you're an alien. Right. <laughs> Right. You make it work. <laughs> That's right. You're good at it. You you know, exactly. You know how to how to sort of blend in, um, and yeah. you know where to hide, and you know how to do it. And you know, it's interesting. Like when I watch certain movies or I hear certain music, I just go, "Yep, those people they they totally understand the way I've lived my life." And um, you know, even as an adult, I still feel like conventional life has never really interested me. And I, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Um, and so I've, I've taken this, the same, the same path as you, I mean, uh, you know, devoted to the writing, devoted to the, to the podcast, devoted to the things that I feel comfortable doing. Um, you know what? Thank you. I have to thank you for doing that because if it has taken the effort that it has taken for me to continue to do it, then I'm just going to say, thank you for not feeding into the background. It, it's hard and it's a bitch and it's rewarded itself and not always itself, but we need you here. So I appreciate it. This has been the greatest birthday present. I I'm so happy to talk. Happy to you. birthday, dear. Thank you. And I adore you. And I'm so happy to chat with you. Uh, you too, Alec. You take care, sweetheart. You too. Thank you, Kristen. Best birthday ever, right? I mean, that is uh, hard to top. 
me chatting with Kristen Hirsch as I very elegantly turn 49. Well, there you go. You heard it all. Uh, that's, uh, that's how it unfolded, and it was fun. I love talking to her. I love her, and it was super cool to have her back on the show. That was fun. Uh, all of your Kristen Hirsch needs can be met by going to her site, kristenhirsch.com. That's Kristen with an I and Hirsch with an E. All right? Uh, as for me, alexgreenonline.com tells you everything you need to know about me. That's Alex with an X and Green with two E's. You know, i got to clear these things up. Sometimes people wonder. So it's best to uh, get all the consonants and vowels straightened out before people start searching for you. Believe me, you'll thank me in the end. If I didn't straighten out the spelling of my name, you might be emailing with a realtor from Delaware. And you might have already put a deposit down on a house you didn't really want. Because <laughs> that's, that's super likely, right? All right. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor. Follow me on Instagram, Ember's Podcast. Please email me if you have any questions. The address is, of course, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. All right? There's all the businessy stuff. No, there's more businessy stuff. Why don't you subscribe to our podcast? We're available on all podcast platforms. Spotify, Last.fm, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or what's left of it. And we're now on iHeartRadio. So you can find us anywhere. Subscribe, give us a rating, throw in a nice comment or two. Uh, believe me, that kind of thing really helps our self-esteem over here. And when I say our, I really mean mine. Because I'm the fragile one on the Stereo Embers podcast uh, staff. I'm the guy that needs the most propping up, it turns out. You're doing great, Alex. Really? How great am I doing? Really great. Yeah? Like on a scale of 1 to 10. You know, 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest. No, you're clearly a 10. Yeah? But if there was room for 11, you might give me 11, right? Sure. What about 12? Okay, yeah, sure, 12. This could go on all day, and sometimes it does. <laughs> now, there's a little glimpse uh, behind the curtain here at Oz. Uh, all right, listen, thanks, as always, for listening to the program. It means the world. It really does. Thank you. You keep listening. We'll keep doing it. Okay? Is that a fair deal? No pressure. Uh, just keep supporting us, and, uh, and all will be well. All right, let's close things off with another song from Kristen Hirsch's Possible Dust Clouds album. This is Loudmouth. Enjoy it. And I will see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.